So if you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll read from John chapter 4, beginning verse 27 through verse 42. That will be the text for the sermon this morning. And I think as we read through it, you'll see it is a unit of Scripture. And that's why we're considering this larger portion of the narrative. Beginning at John 4, 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to him or to one another, rather, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. For they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would bless by your spirit the reading and preaching of your word, that we too would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Telling others about Jesus. Why is it that something so basic to the Christian life is so often neglected by Christians? That is, telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope to address that at some point in the sermon this morning. So if you haven't been with us here on Sunday mornings, what we're doing is we're going through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, passage by passage. And last time... We've considered actually over the previous several weeks, John chapter four, where Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the reason he had to go through Samaria is because he had this divine appointment with this Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus crossed the cultural uh, boundaries. He crossed the gender barriers by speaking to this woman. And just as a footnote, we ought to remember That historically, generally speaking, wherever the gospel of Christ has gone, the elevation of women in society has happened. 
Honest historians will tell us that because this woman in her day and time was not treated uh, equally as men were treated. And so Jesus then demonstrates this for us by speaking to this woman. And so he moved the conversation with her to spiritual matters. He talked about this living water that he had, that if she were to drink from it, she would never thirst again. Remember, she was a sinner like all men, except for Jesus, the God man. And she had been with five men and the one whom she was with at this point was not her husband. Jesus knew that and he revealed that he knew that to her. And so then the conversation shifts on the part of the woman to worship there in verse 19 and following, talking about how her fathers said that this was the place to worship. And then she presents this whole issue to Jesus. And so he talks about true worshipers and how true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And we looked at that last week, what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth from a heart made new by the Holy Spirit of God, according to the truth of God. So our worship should be according to the word of God only. And our worship should be full of God's truth from his holy word. And so then she tells him, I perceive you are a prophet. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming there in verse 25. And Jesus says in verse 26, ego a me in the Greek, I myself, I am the one who speaks to you. I am he, the Messiah. And so he reveals his identity to this woman. And so then beginning at our text this morning, there at verse 27 through verses or through verse 20, uh, 42, there are basically three sections here. And you need to understand how John records this for us under the inspiration of God's spirit. So in verses 27 through 30, we find that the disciples return to the well where Jesus had engaged in this conversation with this woman. Jesus sent them into the city or the town to go get food. They come back. They're surprised that he's speaking with the woman. And in addition to that, a Samaritan woman, because remember, there's that controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the woman then leaves. She goes back, we're told in verse 28 and at the end of our text, she goes back to speak to those in the city about this one that she has met at the well, Jesus. And so she reports this conversation in particular to certain men in Sychar, her hometown of Samaria. She invites them to come with her and to see, is this the Christ? To see if this is him. And so she leads people to come back to the well there. And then the second portion of our text in verses 31 through 38 there, uh, we see that while she is gone, the disciples try to get Jesus to eat. That's why he sent them uh, into the city. Now, Jesus being the God man, he, he orchestrated all this. He's part of how all of this works out providentially. If you look there, verse 27, and at this point, that is after the fullness of the conversation Jesus had with this woman at just the right time, the disciples come back. And so the disciples then try to get Jesus to eat. And so Jesus being the teacher, always teaching, leads the conversation to spiritual things. He talks about spiritual food, his food, and what that is and what it means. And then he leads his disciples to engage 
in what we call evangelism, telling others about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that the fields are white for the harvest. And so then in verses 39 through 42, uh, we find there that because of this woman and what she does, the Samaritans come, they follow her back and and they believe in Christ. Ultimately, they go back to their town. Jesus stays with them and they themselves believe because of the word of Christ himself. They believe that he is the savior of the world. And what a glorious uh, portion of John's gospel this is. So this morning, what I want to do is talk about evangelism, because that's what's going on. Evangelism and the church of Jesus Christ. And so basically, there will be three headings. Evangelism, first of all, is the duty and privilege of every Christian, every disciple of Jesus Christ. We'll see that, I hope. And then we'll see that evangelism is the delight of the Father and the Son. And then last, we'll see that evangelism is the collective effort of Christ and his church. Before we begin, let me answer a question. The question is, what is evangelism after all? We need to understand what that is. One has put it like this. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. So the gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, how Christ came to save sinners, to seek and save that which is lost, to bring forgiveness of sins through his atoning death. And so evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, to bring people to come to a place where they repent of their sins, turning from them, putting their trust, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that process is evangelism. Now, I need to mention this because um, it's out there. Perhaps you've experienced this in your own Christian life. Really, there, there have been two misnomers about evangelism. One is that the pastor is the only one who does evangelism. The pastor, that's, that's what we pay him for. It's his job. He doesn't have to go to work, you know, Monday through Saturday. That's what he does. I only work one day a week, right? Another misnomer is that the congregation does it all. The pastor, he just, you know, does whatever he does during the week, and and then the congregation does it all. As we're going to see, I hope, uh, those are both incorrect. Uh, Formally, they're false alternatives, logically speaking. And when it comes to the gospel and preaching the gospel This happens in different forms. There is the official proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who does that? The man called by God, approved by the church, the pastor, the evangelist, the one who holds office. But also, there is gospel preaching, if you want to use that word with the lowercase p, gospel telling, gospel teaching, or as it's put in the Greek in Acts 8, gossiping the gospel on the part of every Christian. So as we consider that then, first of all, let us see here that evangelism is the duty and privilege of every disciple of Jesus Christ. We see that with this woman. Now John, 
I don't think he records every detail about what this woman said, even when she went back to Sychar, to that town in Samaria. I don't think John tells us everything, but we get the gist of it by what we see in verses 39 through 42. Um, She testifies. She leads them back to Jesus. And then they say they know for themselves in verse 42 that he is the savior of the world. But also, as Jesus talks with this woman, do you get the sense that he is leading her along? That she does make progress in her thinking? That he's pulling back the layers of her own life as she's hiding behind certain things? Jesus himself is leading her to himself. And I believe she was converted. And uh, she calls him sir at the beginning of her conversation with him. And then she's to the point where she says, could this not be the Christ And as I've already mentioned, those men back in Samaria called Jesus the Savior of the world. And don't forget that we're told by John in verse 28, she left her water pot. Now, why? We can speculate. I think she left her water pot for at least two reasons. Number one, she planned to come back. And it may have been pretty heavy to take full of water. She was in a hurry. But also I think she left her water pot because she valued more than literal water, the living water that Jesus himself offers. That which only satisfies the soul, Jesus himself. And we'll see a little bit more about why she left that water pot in a moment. Now, why would she give this testimony about Jesus? Why would any disciple of Jesus want to tell others about Jesus Christ? I think that's a valid question. I think the text uh, forces us to think about that question. I think, first of all, when you see this, this lady's past, that she has a life marred with her own personal sins, fornication, adultery, idolatry, She now has a life that has been cleansed by this living water, cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And her conscience, as Hebrews 9.14 puts it, is now cleansed and will be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so she's excited. She's thankful. She's joyful. And she loves her neighbors. She wants these men to know that forgiveness of sins. She wants these men to know the forgiveness of sins and the joy that comes from salvation alone in Jesus Christ alone. I think that's why she went. You know, I remember um, when I was about 18 or so, senior in high school, that's when I was converted, even though I grew up in the church. Um, I remember one of the first fruits of my salvation was I wanted other people to know. And here I was when I was at Georgia State. I went there for a little while and um, I, I don't hold it against me. I worked at the United Way for a little bit while I was going to college and I had to walk across the street to Georgia State. And I walked through this this public park there. I think it was off of Edgewood Avenue and it reeked. It was smelly. This is where the homeless people lived. And so what did I do on my way to school? I would, I would try to tell them about Jesus. And uh, that's really, I think, So what natural for the Christian, the disciple of Christ, to want others to know. Now, we have to acknowledge uh, that 
Um, Not everyone has been called to preach and teach the gospel officially. But we have, to one degree or another, been called to testify of Jesus Christ. Again, we see that with this woman. In Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. There's the multitude out there. And he tells these disciples of his, you, and in the Greek it's you, you alone are the salt of the earth. You, you alone are the light of the world. And he tells that to his church. That's us. We, nobody else, the church of Jesus Christ, not only Providence, but the whole universal church, we are the light and the salt of the world and earth. And in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter in the Bible tells us as Christians that we are to sanctify, we are to set apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts. Christ is Lord in our hearts. And always to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear, with godly respect. Hold your finger in John and turn with me to Acts chapter 8 to the right. Acts chapter 8, because we see this example in the early apostolic church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it it says there, Now Saul, who was also Paul, who became the apostle Paul after this point, after he was converted, Saul is consenting to his, that is Stephen's death, disciple of Christ. And so a great persecution erupts in Jerusalem against the church of Christ. And it says there in verse 1, They, the church, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except who? The apostles, those called officially to preach the gospel. And so Paul's or Saul at this point, verse three, is making havoc of the church. Look down at verse four. Therefore, those who were scattered, who are those who were scattered? The church, with the exception of the apostles. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So the church, they were scattered. And what were they doing? They were telling others about the gospel of Christ. They were telling others about Jesus. And then it says, verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Do you see what's happening? The apostles, they stay back. The church is scattered. The church, as they go, they are preaching or gossiping the gospel. They are telling the gospel of Christ. And then... Philip comes down and he preaches officially. He preaches Christ to them. So it's not either or. It's both. It's those who are called officially to preach the gospel. Men gifted by the Spirit. Christian men recognized by the church, as Romans 10 tells us. They are called to preach the gospel. And the church gives testimony or witness about the gospel of Christ too. And so we need to see that. And as we go back to John chapter 4, that's what's going on. Jesus is the master evangelist. And he leads this woman to himself. And then she goes and tells others about him. By the way, as I've mentioned already, this this Samaritan woman, 
uh, in her day. She would not have been on par with other men, especially within the context and culture of the Jewish people. Because women under that system, they were like second class citizens. And so Jesus, again, he teaches us to have dignity, toward, you know, treat women with dignity, respect and honor. That's the Christian principle. Go back and look at 1 Peter 3. And he does something else the Jews wouldn't have done. He teaches her doctrine. Well, doctrine is teaching. He teaches her Christian doctrine. The word of God. And so we need to remember that. Now, 1 Timothy 2.12 makes it clear that women are not to teach or have authority over men in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the way it is. That's what the Bible says. That's based on creation. It's based on the fall. You can go back and look at that at 1 Timothy 2. However, that doesn't mean that you ladies are not to be learning about the truth, about teaching Christian doctrine. And so Timothy himself, he was taught by his mother, his grandmother. Um, you know, women, First or Titus 2 teaches that women are to teach the younger women, the older women are to teach the younger women, and so forth. So we have that in Scripture. And so evangelism then is the privilege, it's also the duty of every Christian disciple. And we see with this woman, it's also a joy. That's why I use that word privilege. Second, there's a second thing about evangelism. And that is that evangelism is the delight of the Father and the Son. No doubt the Holy Spirit, too. We're Trinitarian. We believe in uh, the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit, He is the one who regenerates or makes people alive in Christ, gives them that new birth. John 3, 3 talks about that. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so the point is, all three persons of the Godhead, no doubt, rejoice in evangelism. But here, Jesus teaches the disciples, once they come back, He teaches them that it is His Father's will and that it's His own personal delight to engage in evangelism. So this is seen in verses 34 and following. He says to them, to his disciples who have come back, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus, he, he leads his disciples from physical food to spiritual food. And what is he talking about? Well, he says, he who sent me, who is the one that sent Jesus Christ to the earth to do a specific thing? Well, if we were to turn to John 5 and verse 36, we would find that it is the father God the Father. So the Father has sent the Son. And he says here, My food is to do the will of Him, that is the Father who sent me, to finish His work. What is Jesus talking about? Well, when you think about food, food, if you eat good food, I guess, I should say I know, but if you eat good food, it energizes you. And then there's some food that really you just love, right? Food that delights our soul, as it were, our stomachs. The stomach is not the soul, by the way. So what's the point? I think Jesus is getting at this. He's saying, my food, that which 
energizes me, that which delights me is doing the will, the desire, the task given to him by the Father and to finish his work. Jesus delighted in doing what the Father sent him to do. That's what he's saying. That's what he hungers after, the Father's will. Specifically, what is he talking about? Well, later, just before his crucifixion in John 17, in verse 4, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, I have glorified you on earth. He's praying to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. In John 19, 30, just before he died, John says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Ultimately, the work that the Father gave Jesus to do was to accomplish our salvation. It is the redemption of his people. Matthew 121, he came to save his people from their sins. And he did this not only through his death at Calvary, not only through his resurrection after that, but also his life. So we say his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And in Christian theology, we refer to this as the passive and active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about the redemption purchased by Jesus through his death, his shed blood, the question is, how will that work be applied to sinners? How is the work of Jesus Christ, how is his redemption how is the forgiveness that he purchased applied to sinners? If you know your catechism, you might say by the effectual application of it by the Holy Spirit. And that's true. But how does the Spirit operate? How is it that that comes to be upon a sinner? Well, Romans 10 tells us. Because Paul there is talking about preachers and the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And in Romans 10, 14, he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? He's talking about the official preacher. And so my point is that the gospel and the redemption that Jesus has purchased, all that is applied by means of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here in verse 35 probably refers to a parable. There's discussion about this. I'm not going to get bogged down. But verse 35, he says, do you not say, are you not saying there are still four months and then comes the harvest? He's referring to this agricultural, perhaps proverb or saying, or perhaps they were discussing this. And he says, there are still four months and then the harvest. Well, he continues. He says, behold, take note. I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. What are they to look at? You know, just before it was harvest time with some crops, they did have a, a white um, blossom at the tip. And uh, here I think he's pointing to those who are coming back to the well. The woman of Samaria, she went to get those 
who were in her hometown. She says, could this be the Christ? Let's go and see. They're coming. They would have worn a white tunic or robe, something of that sort. So here they come flocking to Jesus. And he tells his disciples, now look, the, the field is white for harvest. He's referring to people. So what's the lesson? This work of evangelism is the delight of Jesus and the Father. And Jesus is teaching His disciples what it means to be a disciple. And they're learning, by the way, from a woman and her example. What does it mean, in part, to be a disciple of Jesus? It means that You are a disciple maker. Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. That's the great work of the church to make disciples of all the nations collectively together as the church of Jesus Christ. We all have our part in one way or another in doing that. And so Jesus' purpose in coming, remember, Luke 19.10, He came to seek and save that which was lost. Remember what Jesus teaches elsewhere in Scripture. When one person, when one poor lost soul comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He says this in Luke 15, in verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, heaven rejoices. So when we engage in evangelism, we are engaging, we are performing, we are doing that which the Father delights in, that in which the Son delights, and that when a person is converted, the hosts of heaven rejoices. They rejoice at the conversion of sinners. So evangelism is the great privilege of the disciple of Jesus Christ It is the delight of the Father and the Son. And last, it is the collective effort of Christ and His church. I mean, Jesus here is doing evangelism. The pages of the Gospels, that's what He's doing. He's preaching the Gospel, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching about that kingdom and how one enters into it through His work through Himself. So that's undeniable. Evangelism also, we are taught here, is the collective work of the church of Jesus Christ in verses 36 through 38. He refers to this analogy. He's he's saying that some sow, some plant, they do the hard work of planting. uh, And then others come along later. This is what happened in those days. Sometimes there would be certain people who would sow the seed. They would prepare the soil, plant, and uh, pray for rain. And uh, then there would be those at the time of the harvest who would come and pick or uh, harvest and gather the crop. And Jesus says, well, so it is with the work of the church, with evangelism. There are those who do the hard work of planting, who sow the seeds of the gospel, and then there are those who come along and they join in that initial work and they reap the harvest. 
That's what he says in verse 36. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For this saying, verse 37, this saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. What's he saying? I think he's saying this. He's telling them to look up to see these people coming dressed in white. He says the fields, the field is white for harvest. And he's saying, you go and you tell them the gospel. Tell them about me. And he's pointing out that this, the seed has been sown. Jesus sowed a seed with this woman. The woman went back to Sychar. She sowed a seed amongst those men. And here they come. The disciples now are to gather the harvest and lead them fully to Jesus. That's what he's getting at there. So in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, One plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. Increase. And so that's the way we should understand our work as we do tell others about Christ, as we try to uh, impress upon others their need for him and his gospel. We have to realize that maybe sometime in the past, someone else has already done this towards these people. Or we might be the first one that has told them about the gospel of Jesus. I've seen that in my own life. And we can't expect that everyone we talk to about Christ is going to be converted at that moment. Or maybe they'll never be converted. But if they will, maybe it won't be at that point. Maybe it will be later. We just have to trust the Lord that we're part of the divine plan. As long as we're faithful, opening our mouths at some point. I've experienced that in my own ministry over the years. Just trusting the Lord. Okay, you, you used me, hopefully, at that moment in that person's life. And they ended up going to another church. Maybe across town, maybe across the country. So we have to understand and trust the Lord in that. Now, I've said that it's not only the work of Christ, evangelism. It was not only His effort while here on earth. It's not only the collective effort of the church, broadly speaking, universally speaking, but in Romans, we see that it's also Christ and his church working together. Back in Romans 10, where Paul uses this tight argument about gospel preaching, he says in verse 14, how then shall they call on him? That's Jesus. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him? And here's how it goes in the Greek. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul is teaching there that when a man is called by God, recognized and sent by the church to preach the gospel, that when he faithfully preaches the gospel, Christ is speaking through that preacher. Christ himself. So don't undervalue biblical preaching. Christ is speaking. When the preacher speaks truth biblically, Christ is speaking his message. And so we see 
Even as Ephesians 2 says, it says Christ came and preached to you. The apostle went there. Paul opened his mouth. Christ spoke through Paul. So it's not only the work of Christ, evangelism. It's not only the collective work of the whole universal church. It is also the collective work of Christ and his church together. And of course, the Holy Spirit working and applying that work to his chosen people. And so in verse 42, back in John 4, it says there, they, those in the city who had the privilege of Jesus staying with them a few days or a couple days, then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him And we know this indeed. This is indeed. Some texts say the Christ. And that probably is what ought to be there. The Savior of the world. One has said that personal contact with Christ is necessary to make faith complete. You see, these men had to come to Christ personally. Not just to hear about him from someone else. You young people, praise the Lord, you, you, you're in a Christian home. You hear about Jesus from me. You hear about Jesus from your parents, maybe from other teachers and so forth. But you have to come to Jesus yourself to be saved and forgiven of your own sins. Just as these men came to Jesus themselves. And also they said, We know they have that conviction that this indeed is the Savior of the world. What a glorious truth. He's not only the Savior of the Jews, but also the Gentiles. All those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so back to where we began. I talked about at the beginning that evangelism is just, it's basic to the Christian faith. And yet neglected by so many Christians. All of us here, no doubt, at one time or another, have been negligent preaching the gospel, at least speaking a little bit about Christ to others. Why is that? I can think of three reasons, maybe more, if we put our heads together. Sometimes we just grow cold, don't we? You know, we begin well, we... We become Christians. Maybe we pass out tracts. You know, we slide one to someone when they're not looking. Or uh, maybe we try to engage someone. And over the years, we grow in our faith and knowledge, even of the Scriptures. But our hearts can become cold as Christians. And so as we saw in Revelation recently, chapter 2, Jesus says to the Christians at Ephesus, you've left your first love. What do you do? He says, remember, repent, and do You go back, you foster that relationship with Jesus, and then you pray and you pray and you you hope and pray that the Spirit will renew in you. As David said, give you a, a new heart, a clean heart, and renew your joy in the Lord. Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, wrote this. He said, Christianity for the early church was no hour's slot on a Sunday It affected everything they did and everyone they met. That's to say the world was turned upside down, as it says in Acts. 
because of these Christians. Their lives were changed. I told you I became a Christian when I was 18. I had this friend. We spent much time together. He was not a Christian. I drove him to school every day. One day he's sitting in my passenger seat and he turns to me and he says, Kevin, what is different about you? What has happened? And I hadn't told him a thing. And so I told him, I'm a Christian. And we talked a little bit about what that meant. Are we living in such a way that others ask that question? What's different about you? Another reason perhaps we don't engage more in evangelism is because we fear men more than we fear God, right? That's a big one, I think. We fear men. I know some people who seem to have no fear of men. And uh, my late father-in-law is one of those. But some of us do, and the prescription for the fear of man is fear of God. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Psalm 16 and verse 8, which is a messianic psalm, talks about the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16 and verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That's the Lord Jesus speaking there. Jesus set his father always before him. He lived in constant communion with his father because he practiced, as we say, the presence of God in his life. And as he did that, he would not fear men. He would not be moved. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God. It is for everyone who believes the power of God unto salvation. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. When we understand the gospel is the power of God, that God uses that to convert and change men, we are emboldened in our faith. And sometimes when it comes to the gospel, we just maybe we don't know where to begin. Could you tell someone? Briefly, what is the gospel? One author puts it this way. He's speaking of this great heritage we have as a reformed church coming from the Protestant Reformation. And he says, we have, it seems, or rather he says, it seems as if we are heirs to a vast spiritual inheritance but we don't know what to do with it. To me, that's profound. Because you think about the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, kind of the the bull in the china shop. Calvin, who was very precise theologically. John Knox, that mouth that went back to Scotland. You know, Queen Mary feared his prayers. And then... There are others. There's the Covenanters. There there are young ladies, old women who are martyred for their Christian faith. What do we do with that? We come to church on Sunday. But are we as bold in our faith as them? Maybe one reason we are not, if we're not, is because we don't know where to begin. So what do we do? You know, I hope that we have classes on evangelism. I've taught on it before. Um, But ultimately... The best thing you can do is to do what this Samaritan woman did. She had no EE training. 
She had not been to an evangelism class. She sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. And she knew that Jesus had forgiven her of all her sins. And what did she do? She told others that same thing. When I was an early Christian, I said some stupid things. And my friend, this is a good idea too, have an older, more knowledgeable Christian with you. He corrected me. He pulled me and said, Kevin, don't ever say that again. I was telling this one guy, well, yeah, we're, in the, we're the same. Yeah, and no, this guy believed false doctrine. But I knew that I was a sinner. I'd sinned terribly against God. And Jesus came to save me from my sins and wipe away all my sins forever. And I knew others could have that too if they repented and trusted in Him. So may we hear providence. May we too be like the Samaritan woman. And may we foster a culture of evangelism. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for saving this woman. We know that Jesus came not to call and save the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. And Lord, we are like her. And we pray, Lord, that we would be like her and her example of telling others about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.